Judges 21, our last chapter, book of Judges. Before we start, let's open a word of prayer. Lord, we're thankful for, again to come for your word, to study it, to meditate on it, to dwell on it, to learn. And we hope, Lord, that these truths and principles that we find in the scripture will impact our lives, not just for a moment, not even just for a week or a month, but they'll have a lasting impact on our lives so that we can be faithful in obeying you and, and living a life that's worthy of your name, Lord. Lord, thank be with us. This evening, um, give us attentiveness and energy to process and digest your word, um, and we're thankful for this opportunity to fellowship later on tonight as well. We praise you, in your son's name, amen. One of the greatest blessings in my life is that the Lord has placed people that have specialized skill sets. Uh, there are people in my life that, are, that I know that are good at a particular field, and I just ask them. Uh, for advice time sometimes because you know they're, they're, they know this thing they know this field and they can help me discern things if I don't know what it's about in my life I have people like Dale who's really good at uh, finances so I would usually ask him for financial advice at times and uh, different people in my life have served that function I'm thankful for that because uh, I know that I am not a master of all trades there's only certain things I know and there are a lot of things I don't know so I rely on the other people uh, to help guide me, help me think through things. Uh, one person in particular in my life that I'm thankful for is my own mom. She's not a believer, but she it was a real estate agent. So she, she, I usually go to her just to ask about real estate questions and uh, even, even locations. And one of the things that you know about real estate agents is that they really know where things are at. Uh, they, they can look at a map and they can tell you, like, okay, this is, this is a good place to buy a house, this is a bad place to buy a house, and this place will get you killed, and this place you can thrive. And... Uh, one evening, my brother and I, uh, found a place. This was a time before we had, well, I had a smartphone, but we didn't have, like, data, so it was just kind of like, it wasn't really a smartphone then. <laughs> but it was before Yelp. So my brother found this restaurant online, and he's like, hey, let's go to this one spot. And it was like, you know, those GPSs that's on your, you know, in your car, and you have to put in the address and stuff. So it was my mom, my brother, and I, and we went. And I'm from Oakland, so we were on the freeway, and we were in the 580. Too bad Tony's not here. I could, like make references. He can help me, because he's from Oakland, too, so it's like, you know, West Side. Anyways, <laughs> he, uh, so my brother, like, he found this restaurant, and we were going on the 580, and then there's, like, this off-ramp, like, kind of like an overpass that goes into Chinatown. We passed it, and my mom was like, okay, where are we going? And I was like, oh, it's, it's a new restaurant that we're, that we're going to try. And she's like, okay, we'll try it. And if you know the 580, it goes from 580, and then eventually you get to, like, the, the Bay Bridge and Emeryville and stuff like that. And, uh, but before that, there's, you know, West Oakland. So it's kind of a ghetto place. And the GPS was like, in 500 feet, take the next exit. And, as, and my mom looked at the GPS, and she was like, no, 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 don't do that. Don't exit. And we exited. She's like, no, no, no. And she's like looking around, panicking and freaking out, saying, there's the freeway entrance. Get back on the freeway. Forget the, just run the lights. Forget this. Get out of here. This is a dangerous area. And it was a pretty ghetto place. It was really dangerous. It was late at night, too, so we're, like, my mom was, like, horrified. She's like, where are you taking us? And it's like, okay, well, calm down, Mom. It's okay. But I was like, a little bit scared because, yeah, it was, like, a really shady place at night, you know, in Oakland. And, uh, and you know, she, and it was right because if we stayed there, we took a wrong turn, we might have ended up in a place where we're, we don't belong and we don't 
you know, we were driving a nice car too, so we could have been robbed or something. <laughs> um, but it was dangerous. It was a dangerous place for us to go. I say this because sometimes I think that's how the Holy Spirit is to us. Not like a nagging mom or a panicking mom, but it's someone that, that the Holy Spirit does in our life is to help us discern things, is to warn us. You know, there's, things, there's places that we shouldn't go, and the Holy Spirit convicts us and tells us, you need to turn back right now. Uh, there's people in our life that we shouldn't spend our time with, and the Holy Spirit convicts us, like, hey, this person is bad news. The, the scriptures gives us biblical principles and even pictures that, of what happens if we live life of sin, and the Holy Spirit pricks our conscience every time we begin to go into areas that can be dangerous to our spiritual health. The Holy Spirit uses the scriptures as in our minds to warn us of the potential threats and dangers of the choices and places, people, and scenarios that would cause us to stumble into sin. So the more we take in scripture, the more we understand God's word, the more we'll be convicted during those times of temptations or times of compromises or temptation to compromise. Only a fool then would ignore the warnings in scripture and go against their conscience as they pursue a life of sin. Over and over again, these last 20-something weeks as we went through the book of Judges, we talked about the dangers of sin. Most of the chapters in this entire book talks about what happens if you choose to live in sin. What happens if you make these idols in your heart? How, you, how if you choose to live a life of sin, how it will ruin your life. It will cause you to sear your conscience. Eventually, you will abandon the Lord. And that is the worst judgment because abandonment by God in this life is absolute assurance that we will be separated from him in the next life. So as we reach the end of Judges, I want us to learn more about it, to, to, to dive into the topic of sin once again for the last time, for a little while at least, and just to bring us up to speed if you weren't here. Chapter 19 was when we were, we're familiar with this text, if you were with us, is the, there was this wicked priest. He had this concubine with him, and the, they were going to this town, this wicked town, and the, they were told, hey, you need to get out of the square because this is a place where there's a lot of wicked men that will do different things. And you remember the story, these wicked men went, surrounded this house and was banging on the door, asking them to let, them, let the priest out because they wanted to have a sexual relationship with them. They wanted to have this mass rape against this priest. Now, remember, the priest chose not to let himself go, but said to him, hey, like, I have a concubine. You can take her instead. And that the whole city, all of these different wicked men decide to commit this wicked act towards this concubine. And then she gets raped to death, and uh, he, the, this priest butchers her up and then sends her to 12, all the 12 tribes of Israel. In chapter 20, there was a civil war going on between the evil people of Israel, the Benjamites, and then the other 11, these bad 11 tribes. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Everyone was evil. Everyone was committing the whole bunch of sin. By the end of chapter 20, there was a, uh, the, the 11 tribes were triumphant. They won. They were able to kill most of the Benjamites to the point where they only have a several thousand left. There's a few hundred of them left. There's only 600 left by the end of chapter 20. And now we're at this point where, once again, we need to be mindful of our sins because of how it affects us now and, and how it could affect us in the future. Failure to take sin seriously will guarantee us to stumble into sin. 1 Corinthians 10.12 reads, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. 
there is a demand and expectation for us to fight sin in our life. And the, and the entire tribe of Israel at this point chose not to fight sin. And the more we reach the end of this book, we'll see how they just keep making excuses to, make, to do more sin. Now I want us to guard ourselves from it. In order for us to do that, in order for us to do that, we need to know what God's word has to say about sin, even where sin will lead us in life so that we will not succumb to the lies and temptations of sin. So five effects of sins in our in, in the five effects of sin that will destroy our walk with Jesus. To put it another way, if you want to ruin your spiritual walk, if you want to apostatize, if you want to leave the faith, just ignore all five of these principles. But if you got, if you want to guard your heart, you want to guard yourself from sin, know your enemy and know them well so that you will not fall. So the first point for us this evening, the first reality of sin that we need to the, that to warn us from from pursuing sin is this, is that sin makes you make dumb decisions. Sin makes you make dumb decisions. Chapter 21, verse 1. Now the men of Israel had sworn to Mitzvah, saying, none of us shall give his daughter to Benjamin in marriage. Remember, the Israelites, they went in, they destroyed all the Benjamites, and there was only 600 left, so they killed all the other women, they killed all the children, so there's no other way that they can have descendants. And they made this vow, I made this vow saying, okay, no, we're not going to give any of our, uh, our daughters to them. And again, this is, a, this, this is a picture of what happens when they choose to do what's right in their own eyes. And chapter 21, verse 1, is in a lot of ways, it's a flashback. It was before the fight. So then they made this vow, and it's like, okay, if we win, we're never going to give them any daughters. This picture is to show why they wept in the second verse. And usually a vow uh, is created with a sense of urgency. And remember, when we were went through Jephthah's vow, he made a vow because he thought that if I make this vow, they'll guarantee, they'll show my devotion to the Lord, and, and we will, will guarantee us a victory. So they, they, they did the same thing here. But this time, instead of one person wanting to make a vow, we see the entire 11 tribes making a vow against one of their own. The Israelites starts out by making a vow to never give the Benjamites any one of their, any, from any of their tribes, any of their daughters, for as wives. And the implication is that they want this entire tribe to die slowly. Not only do they ravage all the people there, that the, the remaining 600, they're like camped in a hill, and it, says, it will say later they were camping for four months. They just want them to slowly die out. The Israelites overkilled in the last chapter, and they left the Benjamites no way to basically continue the line. Remember that they were just supposed to get the ones that were committing this crime, but at this point they took it, even, they took it further and more than what the punishment calls for. Verse 2, so the people came to Bethel and sat there before God until evening and lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. This verse then begins to go back to the present time. The Israelites won, and now they look at the destruction of the war, and then this word sat down has this, because it has this, is usually used to, to, to describe uh, worship. It's this like a worship position or this mournful position. This posture is a, is a, is a sign of great grief and lamentation. They didn't grieve over their own sins or the nation's sins as a whole. Look at what they're grieving at, verse 3. <clears throat> they said, why, O Lord God of Israel, has this come about in Israel so that one tribe should be missing today in Israel? God doesn't answer their question even though they are going to the right God. Verse 4, it came about the next day that the people arose early and built an altar there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So these Israelites did these religious rituals in hopes to get God on their side to try, uh, in, in the surface, seem to look like they want to reconcile. 
But you understand that there was no sign of repentance. And we know this because we look at the rest of the book. There wasn't any sign of, like, change. They just continued doing wicked things. Verse 5. Then the sons of Israel said, Who is there among all the tribes of Israel who did not come up in assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. So not only did they commit the terrible oath, they needed to figure out a way uh, to try to get them out of it. They wanted to know, okay, of all the tribes that went, not, again, when we think of these tribes, it's not like everyone showed up. And they were trying to figure out, okay, who didn't show up? Because we made this vow before that it, people who didn't show up, they need to be put to death. So they, they, we see, we'll see that there were people that didn't show up. Verse 6, and the, uh, and the sons of Israel were sorry for their brother Benjamin and said, one tribe is cut off from Israel today. The Israelites, uh, the rest of the Israelites felt bad. And what is strange that they almost seem to have forgotten what they fought the Benjamites in the first place, why they fought them. They fought the Benjamites because there was a bunch of immoral men that raped this uh, woman to death. And notice in this entire section, I guess I'm going a little bit ahead of myself, but in this entire chapter, the priest is never mentioned. This concubine is never mentioned. They, they're, just, they're, just, they're just out of the picture completely. They just felt bad at this point that they almost destroyed one of their own. Verse 7, what shall we do for wives for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord not to give them, not to give them any of our daughters in marriage? There's a sad irony here that these Israelites are now suddenly concerned over what God has to say about a vow that they made to themselves. This oath that the Israelites made is made without concern for consequences. They made this vow rashly and wanted to try Get a victory, get a victory over the Benjamites, and now they, now they have this victory. Now they're regretting this vow. This is a lack of commitment from the people of Israel. Again, no surprise, since they were all doing what's right in their own eyes. It's one of those poor, it's one poor decisions after the next. In fact, if we continue on to the text, you will see that they'll make more and more dumb decisions that is going to increase problems and destruction in their own life. <clears throat> in the early '90s, there was this group of frogs in, from Puerto Rico called the Koki frog. Uh, they, are, they are called that way because that's the noise they make. Koki, 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 Koki. And uh, apparently there were, you know, there were these native frogs. And people in Puerto Rico are like, oh, they're so cool. And they hear them at night. They're like, oh, it's like, it's like reminds me of childhood. And they just love these little frogs. It's almost like a natural like, animal for them. But these two little frogs, when they sh- uh, snuck into this cargo boat, and that boat was shipped to Hawaii. And these two little frogs, I think it's more than two frogs, but the story says two frogs. It's probably not. It's probably a little bit more than that. But they started going, they went to Hawaii, and they started reproducing. They started populating Hawaii, and then, and, you know, they start going all over the place. And, you know, these frogs aren't inherently dangerous. They don't have, like, any diseases. But they're dangerous in the sense that they, they, they eat all the, you know, bugs and stuff, so it ruins the ecosystem. And these frogs... They, they didn't have anyone that wanted to eat those frogs. There weren't any animals in Hawaii that wanted to chew, that like wanted to eat these frogs, which I was surprised by when I read that, being a Chinese person. I was like, come on, there's got to be some Chinese people that want to eat these frogs. But no, they didn't have any. They, like, no one wanted to eat these frogs. So there was like, all these frogs populating over all the islands. And again, what's, I guess, beautiful, beautiful for one is ugly to another because the people in Hawaii, they love that little creaking sound. But people in Hawaii hated it. Puerto Rico people loved the sound. Hawaii people hated it. They hated it because they weren't used to it. They just kept hearing the sound. They just keep koki, koki. And there's like a whole swarm of them. So just, they just cry out throughout the day and night. Again, these frogs aren't inherently harmful. And then they, 
uh, you know, they just, people just were just tired of it. So then they spent millions of dollars trying to figure out ways to get rid of these things. When, the, when they asked the governor uh, about this whole situation, this is what he said. He said, I kick myself in the back every day for not getting started more aggressively. The response of this governor is often so similar to the way people respond to sin. Those who fall into sin have made dumb decisions and wish that they did not make the first decisions in the first place. How many people have looked back in their lives and can trace how their entire life was wrecked by one poor decision? How many people wish that they could just stop the first and that led them to the state they're currently in? Had they been more aggressive with sin in the beginning, they would have been spared from many days of despair. And if you don't believe that, you can just read the book of Genesis. I think the man of sorrow, I think the, the person who's most sorrowful is Christ. He's described that way. But I think the second to that is Adam. You know, he, he committed the sin, and every single one of his descendants, there was some sort of murder or some sort of death. You know, he outlived a lot of them. And it's because of his, own, his consequences of his own sin. He was separated from God. He was no longer in paradise. It's because of one sin. Sin will make you make dumb decisions. You need to be wise and take sin seriously because it will cause you to do more sin and make, and make you do, make more rational decisions. Sin will make you do more sin. It blinds you from truth, so it makes you do dumb things. Not only can sin make you make dumb decisions, but sin also makes you want to create loopholes in your life. Sin will cause you to always think of ways to not obey the Lord, which is our second point. Sin makes you create loopholes. Sin will make you create loopholes. Verse 8. And they said, Who one is there of the tribes of Israel who did not come up to the Lord of Mizpah? And behold, no one had come to the camp from Gebesh Gilead to the the assembly. For when the people were numbered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jebesh Gilead was there. So they did this roll call, and they said, hey, who was not there? Remember that vow that we said, like, we, if there was a time of war, we all got to be there together? And they did, the, they, did, they did the roster check, and they found, hey, there's no one from this particular tribe that went. So they said, okay, then we need to destroy this. They said that those who did not come up, they need to destroy. Now, how strange is this? See how strange, how bizarre things are starting to get? They themselves didn't finish what they were set out to do. Now they're going to find any missing tribe that they, that they did not come to fight which is now going to cause them to exterminate them, too. They found this one tribe, this one small little group of people from this one land. They said, okay, we're going to get them. We're going to find these people and we're going to get them. The reasons given why these, pe- these people didn't show up, it could be that they maybe missed the mail or, uh, they, or some maybe just out of fear. But it didn't explain why. The point is that the Israelites found that there's a group of people that are part of the tribe of Israel that were not there when they made the vow. So it's like, okay, we could get, we could get these guys. And again, they, they're, they, they said it's important that they found someone that's in the tribe, but they didn't want to compromise. They didn't want to put like a Gentile group of people because then they'll say, oh, we've committed a sin against the Lord. You know, God told us not to intermarry with other races. So we should just make sure that we find someone that's, 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 that's part of the tribe, but not really with us that made the vow. See how they're trying to make loopholes here? Verse 10, and the congregation sent 12,000 of, of the valiant warriors there and command them, saying, Go and strike the inhabitants, the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword, with the women and the little ones. 
They decided to grab 12,000 to kill them, and this is madness. This is out of preserving this one wicked tribe, they decided to go and kill it innocent ones. Uh, verse 11, this is one thing you should do. You shall utterly destroy every man, every woman who has lain with a man, and they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who did not know a man by lying with him. And they brought him to the camp at Shiloh, which is in, which is in the land of Canaan. They killed all the men and all the children. They, they found 400. And the problem now is that they do not have enough. <clears throat> they do not have enough uh, young ladies for these Benjamites, which we'll see in a sec. And what is twisted about this whole scenario is they begin to be, be really creative with their sins. What the Israelites did was technically correct, correct in their own eyes. Right? They said they made a vow with amongst the people that were there to not give their kids up. But it's like, oh, but what if other people, what people that were not here? So they're trying to find all these loopholes. They obviously didn't figure out all the details of their vows, but they at least were following through with the vows that they made, and they could do those things with a clear conscience. Part of the dangers of sin is we begin to figure out ways to make loopholes to sin more. Uh, I don't know about you. I think if you were parents or if you worked with children or if you were a kid, you, at one point you'll see a kid say, you know, when a parent gives instructions, like, hey, don't do this. Like for when, I was high, when I was in elementary school, uh, one of the rules, I think you guys know what it's like, hey, don't run in the hallway, right? Like you guys heard that, don't run in the hallways. We, we even have that rule here, like, hey, the kids, don't run in the hallway because it's dangerous. But then what do some kids do? They start speed walking, right? They're not running, and then they're like, hey, why are you running? It's like, I'm not running, teacher. I'm speed walking. That's different. You didn't say I can't do speed walking. And then the teacher will like, okay, fine, you can't do running and speed walking. And then they start doing other weird things like crawling on the ground and like finding all of these different things to like just basically offend the teacher. And right, and like the, those kids in their mind are technically correct, right? You said no running. I didn't run. I'm just doing the worm on the ground or I'm doing breakdancing or whatever. But at the heart of the action is because we all want to make excuses or loopholes so that we can continue living sin out. Some people even say, well, you don't know my life. You don't understand what my situation is. And what I do know, usually when I see people say, like, well, you don't understand my life. You don't understand this sin. I'm committing this sin. You don't know me. You can't say anything. Usually when I hear that, I think to myself, well, I don't need to know your life because God knows your life. And I know what God's word has to say. So this is what God's word has to say. So you need to listen to God, not me. You know, so there are people that affirm false teachers, affirm immoral relationships, affirming compromises. All of these things are an offense to God. And the only way to make sense for you to continue to do those things is because you make mental loops in your mind to not obey the Lord. God doesn't look the other way when we sin. And he does not make exceptions for our sins either. You can't expect to be wholly devoted to God and be holy when you continue to make all these loopholes in your spiritual walk. Sin is not just withholding your actions. It's also not doing what you're supposed to do. Not only are we called not to do the wrong thing, but we're also called to do the right thing. This is what we call the sins of commission and omission. Omission meaning the things that you don't do that you're supposed to do. And commission meaning you, you, you collaborate. For example, Jesus, in, Jesus tells us that those who offend us, we need to give them a blessing. Right? Scripture tells us, First Peter 1, this is the context of people that are suffering, people that are under persecution. <clears throat> First Peter instructs them about the context of marriage, that like how, <clears throat> excuse me, they're called to live godly lives, <clears throat> how, they're, how a family's supposed to treat one another. And First Peter 3, 9 tells them 
We'll start from verse eight, First Peter three eight. To some of all of you, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Not return evil for evil. That's what we usually do, right? We 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 may not return evil for evil, but there's actually another part. But giving a blessing instead, for you call for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Scripture tells us not just simply withholding uh, bad things. That's uh, that's you know that's what we're supposed to do, but we're also supposed to respond in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. So when we fail to respond in a way that's pleasing to the Lord, that is in itself a sin. Matthew 5, chapter, 30, uh, chapter 5, verse 33. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at, at all, either by heaven, or it is in the throne of God, or by, or by the earth, for it is the foot of stool of, of his feet. Or by Jerusalem, for it is a city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head. You, you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond this is evil. So again, this is Christ telling them, you want to live a Christ-like life, you not only need to withhold things, that's like here withholding oath, but later on he explains more. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. So then, withholding means that if someone hurts you, you don't fight back. But not only that, but you will turn the other cheek. That's, that's what we often miss. We, we forget that aspect of, like, returning uh, uh, evil with good. That's something that we don't like to do. But when we fail to do that, that's considered sin in God's eyes. Verse 40 in Matthew chapter 5. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So again, we often, we may not want to kill the enemy, but do we pray for those that afflict us? Think about those in your life. Think about the people in your, your work, your family members. You may withhold anger outwardly, but, in, but do you still do the things that Christ commands you to do? Christ continues by saying, so that you may, but I said you, uh, oh yeah, first of all, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, who causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same thing? If you greet only the brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, oftentimes, we know, like, okay, we know these passages. We could, we'll maybe do half of God's command, but not the other half. We'll turn one cheek, but if someone slaps us, we're not going to turn the other cheek. If someone tells us to go one mile, we'll say, oh, that's it, that's enough, I can't do any more. We make loopholes. I mean, even like different commentaries, when I read the, the passage I read, there's different commentaries of say, oh no, that doesn't apply to us today in, in different contexts. Well, in the context of saying that you need to, you need to obey, you, need to, you have to live holy lives. This is what it means to be distinct in the world, that we don't respond like the world. The world will always make excuses not to do the right thing, but as Christians, we can't make these loopholes. Because if you continue making these loopholes, eventually you'll sear your own conscience you'll find that your natural instinct is to figure out ways for you not to submit to the word of God. But if you find yourself constantly making exceptions to, 
to obey the law, don't be shocked eventually you start denying the obvious commands of Scripture. If God's word is not sufficient in every area of your your life, then sin will dominate every area of your life. On a side note, knowing this, that we have these sins of commission and omission, our natural propensity is, knowing that we have this natural propensity to make exceptions to, to obedience, this should really appreciate, make us appreciate our Lord Jesus Christ because he didn't make any loopholes even though he was offered temptation. But remember when Pastor Henry preached about the gar- how he was in the garden, Satan gave him all these temptations. There's these like, ways to bypass the cross. Christ had all these opportunities to not endure suffering, but out of faithful obedience to his father, Jesus endured. He endured every aspect of God's word perfectly. Now going back to Judges, how easy is it is for the Israelites to make all these loopholes, how easy it is for us to do exactly the same. We too can make these mental and do these mental gymnastics in order to get the outcome that we want in life. Whatever life stage you are in, you need to develop convictions from, from Scripture and stick to it. The reason why is because those convictions should be from the Word of God. And when people deny certain commands of Scripture, in essence, what they're saying is that these are, there are parts of God that is not good. Right? There's things like, oh, we need called to be patient. I don't want uh, to do the patient thing. Well, then you're saying that, like, God's attribute is wrong. All of these com- commands of holiness is a reflection of who he is. So when you deny certain attributes, uh, certain, if you deny certain commands of God, you're saying you're essentially denying certain attributes of the Lord. You can't approach God's word with what you can get away with, but rather how you can be faithful to it. My hope that this doesn't become you, brothers and sisters, that you don't make loopholes in your mind to not sin or make loopholes in your mind so you can get away with sin. Please don't get to the point in your walk where you believe that disobedience is a virtue. No, God asks for grace. No, you need to, we all of us need to ask God for grace to fully and wholeheartedly submit our life to his word and also reveal areas in our life that we fail at. And we want to submit to those in every areas as well. If you want to guard, if we all want to guard our lives from sin, we must remember that sin not only makes us make dumb choices, or to create loopholes in our lives. But thirdly, sin makes us blame the consequences on God. Sin makes us blame God. The third point, sin makes us blame God. Look at verse 13. Then the whole congregation sent word and spoke to the sons of Benjamin, who were at the rock of Ramon, and proclaimed peace to them. Benjamin turned at the time, and they gave them the woman whom they had kept alive from the woman of Jabesh Gilead, and and there were not enough. And the people were sorry for Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. After Israel went out and murdered these group of people and took these wives for the Benjamites, uh, they wanted to reconcile. It says that they want to proclaim peace to them. It's almost as if they were trying to do some sort of peace offering, which is what they were trying to do. Verse 13 shows us that they were trying to proclaim peace. And verse 15 we see how they were sorry, but their brokenness was not over sin. They were broken because they thought what God did was wrong. They were not pleased with how God orchestrated the entire situation. They began to blame God for what has happened. You know, there are people that say things like, if God didn't give me this, then I wouldn't have, be in this situation right now. You know, people sometimes go through certain life stages and they blame everyone except for themselves. 
And again, in theory, you can just trace it all back to Adam because everything that the fall happens because of Adam. Yes, you can blame him. But yet, what did Adam do? He blamed God for the fall. He said, "Is you know, this woman that you gave me. Now, how easy it is for us to blame God whenever we make poor decisions and fall into sin. Sometimes we fall into sin, and then the moment we fall into sin, we begin to get all theological about everything. We are philosophical, and we want to assign blame to the Lord. Sometimes this is how we react to sin, is it not? We make dumb choices, and instead of taking responsibility for those choices, we begin to blame the Lord. If God is good, then why does this happen to me? It's like you made dumb choices. That's why it happened to you. We know objectively what the Bible has to say about certain matters and even warns us against the consequences of sin. But the moment we fall into sin, it is so easy for us to blame all the consequences on the Lord. Instead of falling down to him and repent and ask for forgiveness, we have this natural bent to just say, question the Lord and, and doubt God and blame the Lord. Do you see this in your own life? Are you broken over the fact that you've sinned against him? Are there broken relationships in your life because of actions that you've committed against the other person? In your career, are you where you're not where are you not where you want to be because of because you failed in certain responsibilities at work? What, er- what areas in your life are actually results of some of the poor choices that you've made instead of repenting or even asking God for forgiveness? Instead of that, you begin to harvest bitterness against the Lord. I remember there were just people in my life just growing up who've lived life foolishly. You know, they spent their money on certain things, and then they, years down the line, they wish they didn't spend that money. Or there's people that spend time alone with this individual, and then they look back and they regret it. They see how life was a mess because of this one relationship. Stop wasting your time and your energy on things that would cause you to sin. And what often happens when people fall into sin is that they ignore, they just, they, they, they can't, fathom and think that like oh what i did why i'm in this present state is because of things that i've done in my own life but yet god is so gracious in giving us a second chance god will discipline all of us for our sin if we fail to discipline us from our own sin and we need to we cannot assign blame to god the moment we fall into sin but instead be willing to ask god for forgiveness and then accept whatever consequences comes our way that's genuine uh, brokenness that's that's what the bible describes as godly sorrow that you are broken, and yet you have to accept. You may have to ex- accept certain consequences in this life. So ask yourself: Do you find yourself blaming God when things go poorly in your life? How quickly are we to shift the blame to God when we make sinful decisions because we don't want our sins to be exposed? We want to protect our own egos or our pride instead of protecting the glory and character of God. If you are living under the consequences of your own sin. See to it that it is a blessing from God that he's trying to discipline you. Don't blame him, but repent and praise God for his faithfulness in, show, in loving you through his discipline. This is what Hebrews describe about, about the loving father disciplining his own children. Because he loves you out of his own discipline, he'll let you go through difficult times for your sins so that you can turn back and, and live a, a life that's pleasing to the Lord. <laughs> Not only does sin makes us make dumb choices, not only does it create, it allow, makes us make loopholes in our life to cover sin. <clears throat> Not only does sin make us blame God for the consequence of our own sin, <clears throat> but fourthly, sin also causes us <clears throat> to commit more sin. 
excuse me, sin <clears throat> also causes us to commit more sin. Verse 16 to 24. Verse 16. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for the wives for those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? The elders didn't realize that they didn't have enough. They had 400, but there's still 200 left. 17. They said, There must be inheritance for the survivor of Benjamin so that a tribe will not be blotted out from Israel. Again, they're, they're concerned about the numbers instead of holiness. Verse 18. But we cannot give them wives of our daughters, for the sons of Israel have sworn, saying, Cursed is he who gives a wife to Benjamin. Then again, they restated the, the, uh, the vow that they made, that they're unable to give their own, women, their own daughters uh, to them because of the vow that they made. The Israelites said that the nation, uh, that the nation that any other tribe gave them vow will be cursed. And then this, is, this shows you how hypocritical and backward sin can make you, right? They were trying to uphold some sort of moral standard when it comes to their, this vow, but they weren't willing to continue to put those people that committed some atrocity to justice. The Israelites realized that they need to find more virgins for the Benjamites, so they need to figure out a solution for, their, for this conundrum that they're in. They don't even care about the fact that, like, oh, hey, the, the reason why we're fighting was because we found this body part not too long ago. You know, they, they completely forgot about needing to put justice in the land, but instead they're worrying about, oh, well, this one tribe have 200 wives. The, the Israelites became so backwards and corrupted that they don't even realize what they're doing. Verse 19. So they said, Behold, there is a feast of the Lord from year to year in Shiloh, which is on the north side of Bethel, on the east side of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem, and on the south side of Lebanon. And they commanded the sons of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in wait in the vineyards, and watch, and behold, if the daughters of Shiloh come out to take part in the dances, then you shall come out of the vineyards, and each of you shall catch his wife from his daughter, daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. Their solution is that, like, hey, we heard there's this, like, bunch of Israelites dancing somewhere, and our plan is you Benjamites need to go hide in the bushes, and when they come out and dance, grab them and run back to your property. Like, that's their plan. This, this, the, basically, the, the technical term is called kidnapping. That's what they're asking them to do. You need to go and kidnap these women. And, you know, and even the Bible prohibits that. Exodus 21, verse 16. He who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he is found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. This is a New Testament principle as well. First Timothy 1.10 tells us like, there's like a list of all of these wicked people at the end. <clears throat> and one of the attributes of a wicked nation is that they will kidnap people. First Timothy 1.10. And uh, like some of the people were immoral and homosexual and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Again, these are these Israelites now thinking, oh, we can find a, we need to find a way to solve this mess. So they think kidnapping is the solution. Now, if you're a single person, this is not a go and do likewise, okay? Don't hide in the bushes waiting for some single lady to come and then kidnap them and take them home. That's not cool, okay? That's illegal, and we'll call the cops on you. But again, the, these Israelites, they're so corrupted. The reason why they did this is because they want to avoid the consequences of, the, of their own vow, the vow that they made. This is how bad Israel has become. They've seen how corrupted everything is and how wicked the people are. They chose to side with their own morality instead of God's. Both sides of Israel, the Israelites and the Benjamites, are living against God. Both sides uh, want to do what they want and without any consequences for their actions. 
They want the Benjamites, yes, they lost a few people, but they should have been exterminated for their sin. But they did not. They lived because these 11 Israelites had this compassion that was, not, that was wrongfully placed. These were wicked people. <clears throat> Verse 22. <clears throat> it shall come about when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us that we shall say to them, give them to us volunteer because we did not take for each man of Benjamin a wife in battle, nor did you give them to them, else you, else you would now be guilty. <clears throat> the, sons of ben, the sons of Benjamin did so and took wives according to their numbers who, from those who danced, whom they carried away. And they went and returned to their heritage and rebuilt the cities and lived in them. The sons of Israel departed from there at the time, every man to his tribe and family, and each of them went out from there to his inheritance. These Benjamites were instructed, if you go and you kidnap them, and let's say like a brother or a dad comes and asks, hey, what are you doing? This is the excuse you need to give them. You say, hey, so we made this vow, and we know that uh, the Bible tells us that you can't give us, um, uh, you, the only way that we can uh, get married is that the father gives a kid, give your daughter to us, but we can't do that because of our own sin. So how about we just kidnap them, and you can say, you can turn a blind eye to all of this. Deal? And they're like, yeah, okay, yeah, that makes sense. It, like, it, it makes sense to them, which is insane, right? They're essentially saying, it's okay for me to kidnap my daughter. And what is crazy is that they're all fine with this, right? The entire tribe, they're, like, killing people, kidnapping people, like, trying to make forced marriages. This, is act, this actually makes perfect sense to them. Sinners are more zealous to support their own authority than that of God. And remember, this entire situation is a judgment of sin. Sin was not punished. It says sin was committed even more to cover and forget the sins that the Benjamites committed earlier. There is no justice that was done. The Levite that started the civil war doesn't even appear anymore. And the, the disgust that Benjamites had earlier, the, the, the disgust that they had for them is no longer there. The Israelites are so backwards now that they, they forgot what they were doing and now are just trying to fix the damage that they caused. The Benjamites' response is so casual and, and inconsequential, Right? They just kind of went back into their own life. Those that stoop down to this lifestyle, they're essentially what they're doing. They, this is exactly how the Canaanites acted. This is exactly how the world was acting at the time. They just adopted that lifestyle. They were living for sin. They were supposed to destroy those that acted like the world, but they did not. They, gave, they let compromises in. The cursing that God stated is meant for all those who reject him, not just strictly for those people that are outside the camp of, of Israel. Israel's attitude towards sin shows that they really didn't care about the effects of sin. Part of the reason why people would escalate sin in their life when they commit some sort of sin is because they forget how much problems the first sin has caused them. Sin has the ability to escalate in its momentum. If we can't catch sin quickly, sin will continue and it will destroy us before we know it. If they didn't care about their first sin, eventually they'll care less about the next sin. This can happen to us as well. Sin will always make you commit more sins, and you make you not take the next sin seriously. You need to be willing to overcome every sin, but if you're, if you're, only, if you're not mindful of one sin, if, you're, if you let that one sin go, it will just cause more sin. So you need to deal with every sin in your life. You can't just brush it under the rug. Because sin will make you commit more sin, which will lead you to more suffering. Not only does sin make you sin 
not only does sin make you make dumb decisions, make loopholes, blame God, or commit more sin, but lastly, sin will make you worshipers of self. Sin makes you worshipers of self. Verse 25, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is the most recognizable and most popular and even the most important verse in the book of Judges, that Israel needed a king. Israel needed to stop doing what's right in their own eyes. And this is a scary and dangerous passage. They became worshipers of self. Nothing about the events that took place is pleasing to the Lord. Through, through their actions, these Israelites have now apostatized. They no longer acknowledge God's holiness and goodness. They did not acknowledge, rather, they, they did not even acknowledge the worldly uh, moralities. They just did what's right in their own eyes. Remember that in chapter 19, they said that their actions were, it was nothing that they've even seen before. What has happened to this concubine was beyond them. Even in worldly standards, what the Israelites did was wicked, and Israel has gone full pagan. They are totally like the world. Wickedness is the standard. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, and the end is always disastrous. This is the end of the book. But can't, this, is, this also can be your destination as well if you continue to live a life of compromise. When a person submits and obeys the passages in Scripture that is easy, ignoring ones that actually require you to die to self, then you aren't really a Christian. You understand that, right? You're really just making a Christianity of your own making. Essentially, you're worshiping and doing what's right in your own eyes. Christianity is, it requires you to deny things that are comfortable for you. And oftentimes, these comfortable things are sin. But if you choose, and choose one sin as opposed to another, if you fight one sin and not another, then you're not faithfully representing Christ. It would be better if you just deny the faith altogether than to choose the ones that you want to submit to. This is what bugs me about liberal churches. It's like they were okay with, they're like, okay, we need to love our enemies. That's cool. That's cool. But we need to ignore all of these other passages of Scripture. That's not Christianity. That's not biblical Christianity. It would be better if you just said that you're something else altogether. Because at least that's intellectually honest. In the same way, if you are living for yourself and you're denying aspects of Scripture in your life, then it's better that you just deny Christianity altogether. Like, I, I wish that you would repent. But if you want to continue living in sin, then just deny Christianity. Just leave the faith. Because it's better that you do that and live for yourself than to tarnish the name of Christ. If you look at this outline, all these five points, you'll notice that the theme from this outline is pretty much most of the outlines in the in most of those outlines that we've preached through, like all 21 chapters, a lot of them have to deal with sin. And you understand that this entire book is really exposition of the end of the book of Joshua. Turn back to Joshua 24, the end of the, the, end of the last book. Jo at the end of Joshua, Joshua, they were at the, they crossed the Jordan, they've taken all the land, there's all these different uh, lands that they have now. But we're going back to the beginning because we want, I want to show you that this book is what happens when they choose not to submit to the Lord. Joshua 24, verse 15, there's that at the end, there's this famous phrase, like, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's what Joshua said. And when we get to jump down to verse 19, then Joshua said to the people, you will not be able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is jealous. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done good to you. The people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. 
Joshua said, you are a witness against yourself that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve. And he said, we are witnesses. Now, therefore, put away the foreign gods which are in your midst. So even before the beginning of Judges, there were already idols there. And incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and we will obey his voice. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statue and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was there in the sanctuary of the Lord. This entire book, the entire book of Judges, is really an exposition of Israel's failure to, to obey God. 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that we need to learn from the mistakes of Israel. Like we see what happens when people have this devotion. This, they're on fire for God in the moment. But the moment you make these compromises, you keep making these compromises throughout your entire life, it will ruin your life. Use these episodes in the, in, in the book of Judges as a warning for your own life not to make compromises. You need to wage war against, against sin, not wage war against the Lord. Sin will cause humans to wage war against God, against one another, and those outside of the covenant. In essence, every time Israel fell into sin, it is a direct attack against God. This is why most of the sermons that we're preaching week after week is to tell us and warn us to fight against sin. We need to take sin seriously. Here's a quote here by um, this theologian. Sin is whatever is opposed to God's will as that will reflects God's holy character. And as that will express by God's command, sin is fundamentally against the, uh, the nature of the Lord. It is, all, it is ultimately opposed to God. The, the results of sin are truly catastrophic. Sin wrecks havoc on a relationship with God, one another, and the rest of creation. It is, it is universal in human history and manifests itself in various cultural expressions. It wrecks human lives. It leaves us broken and vulnerable. It also leaves us needing grace and longing for redemption. Although we don't live in the time of the judges, some of us are living as if we are living in the time of the judges. <clears throat> we live for ourselves. We call ourselves Christians. We think that we're the covenant people. But yet in our lives, in the way that we express our Christian faith, goes against what God's word has to say. And there's a reality that sin and evil is attractive. Yet the Bible tells us to, to, to guard ourselves against it. Sin is crouching at the door. Sin is something that we need to take seriously. We need to be a people that are willing to repent and let go of sin because sin will have devastating consequences in our lives. This book, the book of Judges, is a book that will tell us how bad our personal life, our home life, our marriage, our parenting, our work, our church life, and pretty much every aspect of our life if we continue to allow sin to run rampant in our life. And I hope that as we went through this, all 21 of these chapters, they'll help you reform areas in your life that does not align with biblical truth. As we study this book, this book shows us the damaging effects of sin so that you, that, so that you don't do what's right in your own eyes. The purpose, at the end of the book of Judges, at the last verse, it tells us that because there's no king in Israel, this, this, this book, the original purpose of this book is to show you what a people is like when they live without a king, but not just any king, 
the king and ruler that we need in our lives and the one that Israel needed is not someone that they can vote into office or someone that they had to just wait until their term runs out. It's not a king that can be voted out of office or impeached or can be killed. No, rather needs this perfect king, this perfect king to rule over them. And we know in the scripture this king is Jesus Christ. And until then, we look forward to the day where Christ will reign. But until then, we need to faithfully live the mandate that Christ has given to all of us. We need to live a life of holiness. And this is what they call it. We live, we, we live for Jesus, right? Jesus is our king. And if he is our king, then why do we live what's right in our own eyes? Why do we live as if there is no king in our, li- in our lives? My hope is that we guard ourselves from that, that we are faithful in our Bible studies, that we're faithful in our studying God's word, that we don't do what's right in our own eyes, but rather we humble ourselves and submit and do what is pleasing and right in God's eyes. Let's pray. Lord, we are so easily swayed by the allurement of sin. Our flesh are always in, at odds with our new nature, and Lord, we pray that you continue to sanctify us through your word. Lord, convict us. Make us sensitive towards sin. Make us see the, the, the folly and the, the damaging effect of how sin can destroy every area of our life we guard ourselves from it. Lord, may you be more precious in our eyes. We know that the, these behavioral things that we do, these things that we can try to accomplish and guard ourselves from sin is useless if our love is not towards you. Lord, make our hearts bigger for you. Enlarge our hearts to be faithful to your word. We want to be obedient to you, Lord. Give us that conviction. Give us the softness to sin and, and submission to your word. Be with us this, be with us now, and be with us this weekend as well. Um, if there's a, any area in our life that is sinful and is not pleasing to you, may you convict us to turn from it. Lord, I know there are a few here who don't want to uh, turn from sin, who is hardened to sin. And I pray, Lord, that you can humble them, that you can soften their heart to show them the the dangers of sin and the glories of the cross, how you died for that sin. No matter how big or small that sin is, it is something that is horrible in your eyes. It, it offends you and it hurts you, but yet you love us enough to die on the cross on our behalf so that we don't have to suffer the consequences of sin. Lord, be with us now as we discuss these questions. Allow us to be transparent and at the same time allow us to uh, think about how we can apply these biblical principles so that we can honor you with our lives. Pray these things your son's name. Amen.